Hello, you're listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today my guest is Dr. Sathina Watson. She is an anaesthetist in the Southwest NHS and uh, no doubt we will mention COVID at some point through this interview. Um, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And the reason that I I contacted you was because you put a a fabulous long post on Twitter just talking about your journey. So uh, thank you so much for accepting this invitation because um, I wanted to know more and I'm sure people reading that wanted to know more. Hopefully it's of interest to someone or if it gives someone a little bit of hope um, to do something, not necessarily becoming a doctor or something that you thought was impossible. um, Hopefully it will tell people how I sort of broke it down into steps to achieve what I wanted to, what I set out to do really. Yeah, it is very clearly steps and methodical as I was reading through so let's start then let's start at the beginning so where were you born? So I was born in Accra in Ghana and I lived there for the first three years of my life and I really don't have any memory of it I've got one memory so it's a very big influence that's actually quite absent in some ways so that's quite that's I'm sure it's played a part. What part? I'm not sure. <laughs> so it's a, it's a big influence, but you're not sure how. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so at the age of three, where did you move? Moved from, uh, so moved from Accra, so that's the city, capital city of Ghana, and we moved right into the middle of Somerset, into a very tiny village uh, called Charlton Mackerel. And... So I moved there with my mum and my dad. So my dad is Ghanaian and my mum's British. My grandparents were living there, which is why we went there. And my younger brother, who would have been a baby at the time. So uh, the stories that the locals would come and sit outside our little bungalow because they've never seen black man before in the flesh. And that, you know, these two brown children with this white uh, mother. So I think we were... We attracted quite a lot of attention. And from my that age, I don't recall negative attention. I'm sure it probably was negative, but I was just remember being looked at. Um, and actually, I guess I found it a little bit uncomfortable. So we lived there for a couple of years and then we moved to Glastonbury, which was quite an interesting place to grow up. And I lived there until I was about 13. So coming from Ghana then into... Somerset Mm. I mean Somerset isn't particularly known for immigration or maybe I'm wrong so I I'm not surprised that you were probably one of the only families like that absolutely yeah and we're certainly in Glastonbury when we moved there uh, the only other sort of ethnic mix that we're aware of was the the people that ran the Chinese restaurant and the people that ran the Indian restaurant so we used to be called names related to either of those nationalities when we were walking in the street because they seemed to just lump us all together. Mm. Um, so I'm sure it was 
it was definitely a difficult period, you know, difficult aspects of upbringing. But then living in the country was amazing. Sheep, walks, you know, picking blackberries, loads of happy memories about that really as well. That, that's good to hear. So you were in Glastonbury then, and let's move into school because one particular thing you were told was girls don't do science. That's right. So I think it was about 12 at the time in, in, in secondary school in Glastonbury, actually. And I quite I remember to being in the physics lab and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, yeah, I think I quite fancy physics and whatever subjects they were telling us about. So I spoke to the teacher and I said, oh, I like physics. And he just looked at me and just said, nope, girls don't do science. And that was it. And I thought, well, my mum's got a degree, so he's probably not right. But I think I better just go with what he says. Perhaps he's telling me I'm not very good at it or, you know, some hidden message. So I just put science to one side. I think I did a couple of science A-levels. So I did biology. My mum was a biology teacher. And then I did chemistry. Chemistry was a total disaster. I basically withdrew from the exam because uh, I was so bad at it. So I ditched the science completely and then went off and sort of did art. So A-level art and English literature and communications and things like that. And, and went off on a sort of more creative path is what the best way to describe it. And so... When you left school then, what happened then? So I went to, so I left school, went and did those A-levels. Um, long story short, boyfriend issues and did really badly in my A-levels. Not oh. badly, I shouldn't say that. Um, not as well as I was predicted. So I'd wanted to go off and do English literature, but I didn't make the grades. So I'd had some, back then it was when we had UCAS and uh, I can't remember the polytechnic one. Um, but I went off to Central London Poly to do uh, media studies, which was actually a really good degree. And I started that for about eight weeks and it was three days practical and two days in class or something. And we learned we were at press conferences with real journalists and at 18. This was completely and utterly overwhelming. And I just left. I thought, I, ca I can't do this. I can't ask questions in press conferences as a little 18 year old. So I left and then worked in Asda for a couple of years, stacking uh, the freezers, which was actually a fantastic job. Not that the, the job itself was OK, but with really good team. And we just used to have a really good time there and always knew I was going to go back to university. But I didn't really know what to do. Um, so this is a bit cheeky, really, to say. So I looked through I wanted to go to Bristol University. So I looked through prospectus. And I just looked at all the degrees that I could apply for that my A-level grades were suitable for. So I found this one. <laughs> okay. Social policy and sociology. Actually, that looks quite good. So I applied for that and was lucky to get a place, uh, which I went to. But what I guess I've left out is a lack of support during my education. So I moved cities or I moved to Weymouth around 13 and I took the equivalent of the 11 plus for the local grammar school and I passed it. But the local grammar school headmistress said to my parents, I don't think she's going to do very well here. Um, even though I've been in sort of top stream in the comprehensive school previously, she said, no, I think she would be, she has to decide whether she wants to be bottom of the top of society 
or top of the bottom. And I think she's someone that probably would be better as top of the bottom. And you can go to this school next door. And I think a suitable course would be secretarial skills and various other things. And I was I was offered the chance of doing one O level, which was English language or something. So my stepdad said, this is absolutely ridiculous. She's passed the exam. She was top stream. We would rather she came in and had a chance of being bottom of the top. So I went off to this grammar school. I wasn't bottom of the top, um, somewhere in the middle, which is probably a good place to be. But this continued throughout. And so just before my O-levels in the sort of fifth year, when they had to write to submit your O-level you know, request for you to sit the paper, they said to my mum, no, Sathina's not clever enough to do that. We are not going to put her through. We'll put her through for a couple. If you would like her to sit the exam, you need to pay for her to sit those exams. So my mum, it was quite a lot of money at the time. She wrote a cheque and said, right, she's going to sit the exams under the understanding that if I passed, I'd get, get the money back. So my sheet came through and of course I passed and we got my money back. Uh, A-levels are slightly different, but when I said to people I was going to apply to Bristol Uni, which was, you know, known as the Oxbridge, second one down from Oxbridge, everyone was like, oh, you'll never get in, you know, what are you thinking? You've got set ideas above your station. Oh, just why are, you, why are you doing it? So I thought, well, swear word you, I'm going to apply anyway. So anyway, I did that degree and came out with a 2-1 degree and then went off to do something else. I, I'm sad. <laughs> I've been biting my lip. It's just so amazing what people say to you. And I remember being at, at school and to not give somebody the option just seems so, so wrong. But anyway, that, that's just <laughs> my thoughts all coming back. Yeah. You're now back at, Bristol University, it was one of the top universities. They told you <laughs> you've got no hope of getting in and you got in, which seems to be a, a theme throughout yeah. your life, in fact. Yeah, it seems to be. Um, so I did my degree and some of the modules in that degree uh, were sociology of health, sociology of dying, social policy. We studied the NHS Foundation delivery of health care and all those things around a subject which I didn't know much about so I think there actually at the time without realizing the seeds of becoming a doctor had been planted because um, it's certainly with no science background or aptitude for science or even desire to be a doctor because I was quite squeamish I would never in a million years have ever contemplated the course or becoming a doctor I would love to go back and tell the teachers at the time oh I'm going to be a doctor <laughs> I would love to hear what their reaction would have been um, so I went off then and started I, I went to America um, and started a career in advertising and internet it was right when the internet was just starting off and I got a job sounds ludicrous now almost sounds unreal but I got a job in Hawaii working for an internet company. So did you just sit in England and think I want to go to America? A friend had moved there and married an American and she she said oh come and stay with me. I stayed there for a bit and I met an Englishman in America actually and got married 
um, in Vegas and came back and did a master's, which I forgot to talk about, in Bristol as well, bizarrely. Um, so I did a master's degree in international policy and, and uh, sort of administration, uh, which again, at the time we started learning about the internet and also did healthcare modules within that degree. So it was my experience in the internet, learning the internet there that enabled me to get the job in America. So met in America, married in America, back to England for a year for me to do my master's. Then we went back to America, Hawaii, Portland, and then lived in Los Angeles where we lived there for seven years. So about nine years in America, seven years in Los Angeles. At what point did you decide actually medicine is for you? So I'd got my job. I call it a job and I will say the word career, but it wasn't a career that I had picked. It was just jobs that had been offered to me. They were very good jobs and very enjoyable jobs and led to interesting work. But I felt that I'd never picked it. And I had one particular job where I kept looking at the clock, you know, the clock would be five to five. We were allowed to leave at five, 4.59, my bag's on the table, I'm out the door. And I was pregnant at the time and the company got bought out. It was an internet company got bought out by a huge company. And I was offered a severance package. So I took that whilst pregnant and then had some time to think because mm-hmm. I'd never had any time off with effectively nothing to do. So I started when being pregnant in America, you see an obstetrician for your care. So I started going to the obstetrician frequently for my appointments. And he was such a lovely man. And I started looking at his job. And whilst you're pregnant, you know, you read through all those books about what to expect when you're expecting and all this. And it's like, oh, this is really interesting how a baby's developed and all this stuff. So I started looking at the job of a doctor and thought, oh, my goodness me. That is the job I should have done. It had loads of features that I liked, lifelong learning, care, like you, you join people at very poignant and personal moments of their life. You can teach, you can do research. It's got practical aspects. There was loads of things about it that suited my personality. And seeing a doctor that gave really good care was quite inspiring. But I still put it to one side because I thought this absolutely, what a ridiculously inconvenient time to want to become a doctor when you're like six or seven months pregnant. I've got a baby coming, what am I thinking? You know, I don't even know what being a mother is going to be like, let alone becoming a doctor. But I couldn't help thinking about it all the time. And when I gave, so I gave birth, and an anesthesiologist gave me an epidural. And he, so I went from the worst pain in my life, horrific pain, sorry to anyone who hasn't had a baby, to no pain whatsoever. I was absolutely flummoxed and mystified by this and just thought, that is the job that I have got to do. So inconveniently, baby arrived, I've decided I want to be a doctor. And didn't really tell anyone took some time to tell my husband because people were I thought people were going to think I was totally and utterly bonkers which many people did think but by now you were used to that 
Yeah, but I thought this probably was pretty bonkers, to be honest. <laughs> you agreed with them. <laughs> yeah, because I had no science background. I was living in America and this was just like the most ludicrous idea. And I had no idea how I was going to make it happen and if it was even possible to make it happen. Mm. And I think you wrote a list this uh, registered with me. You wrote a list of everything that you needed to do to get into medical school and looked at it yeah. and thought, this is impossible. Yeah. So the I get, where did I start? I think my husband, and we're not married anymore, but I think my husband at the time, I'm not sure how seriously he thought I, I, I don't know. But anyway, I, I thought I'm going, I'm going to break it down into little bits. And, and the reason I did it sounds completely tacky, but I had, we were having a Chinese meal and I opened the fortune cookie and the fortune, and I've been thinking about being a doctor and the fortune cookie said, your impossible dream can become a reality. And I read it and I read it over and over again. I thought, okay, so how can I make the impossible possible? and make this happen and the way to do it was to go okay what do I need to do so I've I was going to start the degree in America none of my qualifications were valid so the first thing I did was enrolled in like a night school at UCLA for basic maths I did two classes there and stopped um, because I realized that this was literally 10 plus 10 is 20 etc I thought if this is what and that was a 10-week course. This is going to take me years and years to get the equivalent qualifications that I've already got. Um, and then with the cost of doing the degree in America, with the debt that they have, and I always wanted to come back to England and believed in the NHS and wanted to work within the NHS, that that would not have been possible. So I then had to make a choice of what can I do in America to enable me to do the degree in England um, with a husband that didn't want to move back to England. Um, so I did some volunteering before embarking on such a ridiculous sort of change of life, volunteered in a local hospital and just to see whether I could handle it and see what medicine was all about. And it was like, extremely rewarding and enlightening and confirmed that that was what I wanted to do so I did that and then waited uh I was 28 when I had my first child then I had another baby so 30 still wanting to become a doctor so I had a husband who didn't particularly we, we were going to move back to England at some point but it wasn't ready it was living a nice life in America and, and not wanting to come back certainly not for me to do my degree in medicine started researching courses in England and discovered to my joy that there was a course that included a year of science that if you didn't have science A levels you could apply for that and if you passed your first year of science you could then go on to the five-year degree and lo and behold one of those places was Bristol as well so I'd found the degree decided not to do the other qualifications in America and I just needed to wait really so I waited started doing my other career uh, and then eventually I applied so I'd done my volunteering and then I applied to med school I'm trying to remember what happened to it. oh I forgot to mention about how I wrote to I'd written to the BMA at the time which they're horrified that this was the case and I haven't got the email anymore but I wrote to them and said I wanted to do medicine and I got an email back saying that uh, 
people over 30 shouldn't really enroll in medicine because they don't have the intellectual aptitude uh, to do this course. And it was discouraged, although some people had done it, this really wasn't the done thing. So really unencouraging email, which I promptly ignored because I knew of people that had done it in their 30s and things like that. So I was waiting to come back, applied for medicine first time and forgot to put my one of my mandatory qualifications on there, got all rejections. So I waited another year, remembered to put that mandatory qualification on, <laughs> applied. Uh, and then, well, then life took on a completely different direction then because my husband was diagnosed with, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which happened suddenly Monday morning. He was not very well. He didn't go to work. And I remember looking at him and he looked green and he looked really, really ill. By lunchtime, we were down at the hospital where I'd actually volunteered, where I knew the people and we were in the emergency department. And I knew something wasn't right because no one was looking at me. They wouldn't make eye contact with me. So I just knew something really bad was going to happen. So we sat there and the doctor told him that he it's either testicular cancer that's metastasized or it's a lymphoma. Long story short, the way the American healthcare system works is we had to go home, um, dosed up on morphine because the hospital for the treatment. So you can go to any emergency department for diagnosis, but for treatment of that nature, it wasn't covered in that hospital. So we went home and then got up the next morning at like six o'clock in the morning and drove to various places, the oncologist, no surgeon we went to first, who told him it was an inoperable, so it was too dangerous to operate. We went to another, anyway, we went around and then eventually ended up at the oncologist office um, who said to him, don't look on the internet, everything is wrong, you will survive this. And I guess the reason I'm telling the story is every single one of those doctors that gave bad news gave it really well and the care that he received was exceptional. Of course, I literally come home having deposited him. Now he's an inpatient and on morphine. And so his mum flew over and I came home to my two fat brown envelopes inviting me for interview for medical school. Oh. And I just was, there's just no way. There's no way I could, could go. So I contacted the universities that had offered me interview and I explained my, my, today or yesterday, my husband's been diagnosed with cancer and I cannot come for interview. And I withdraw my application, so that's what I did. Um, and they said, well, apply next year, we'll guarantee you an interview. But that seems like, you couldn't even imagine getting through to the end of the week let alone in a year, and was I being completely selfish for wanting to do this at this time? So, mm. yeah. If I can just take you back, because when you wrote about this, you were saying you visited different places that said, no, inoperable, 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 but you found somebody, as you say, who said you will get, you will get through this. And that, to me, just highlights part of your character that is nothing is impossible you'll just keep going till you find mm. the solution 
Yeah, I can't, I can't remember much about that at the time, but it was so that, yeah. So he got through this and you're a year on and you reapply. Yeah. And you get your so interview. I got my interview. So my husband at the time is now, so he's he's recovered, he's in remission. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we've had a year, extremely difficult year. I basically ditched everything, focused on the children and 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 looking after him. And but I think that that triggered also the the, the awareness that we were so far away from our family, and now moving back to England is probably something that should be considered a bit sooner. So I think he probably had a, a, a bit more of an open mind about it. So. But still, he was a bit surprised and I took my, I went on my interview. So I flew from Los Angeles to London, arrived at like 12 o'clock on the Saturday. My interview was like 10 o'clock on Monday morning. Hadn't slept for like 36 hours. It was horrendous. So I arrived in Bristol for this blinking interview that I'd flown 5,000 miles for, looking like death and in a terrible state. And how old was I there? 33 33 so three years on and I went into Starbucks at the time and had a coffee and just went to the toilet because I was in tears because I was so tired I said come on you got two hours just get it together and go and do this interview so I walked into my interview slot I sat in the waiting room and saw 16 17 no not 16 17 18 year olds with their parents and I thought okay I've got this I'm like 33 <laughs> I'll be okay and they were really nervous and I went in sat down in this big panel room with three people and the first question they said to me was you haven't just flown all the way from America for this interview have you and I thought I don't know what to say because the answer is yes but it was said in the tone of voice I thought it was almost I picked up as well you're not going to get a place that sort of tone of voice so I just said well yes I have actually did my interview did the tour of the university and managed to get over my jet lag and then went back to the States um, and waited and then logged on. So one week later, said unconditional offer to Bristol University to study medicine, which was literally unbelievable. So I've done that. <laughs> Brilliant. So you'd made the impossible possible. Yes. But it was still impossible. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the place. So that bit was done. But I was accepted as an overseas student because I'd been in America. And that was unaffordable. I think it was 20, 30,000 pounds a year for six years. So not, not affordable. Um, and was able to get that changed to a home student, which then made it possible. But then I had to convince my husband to move back to England. Long story short, we moved back to the UK um, for me to start the degree, which was just remarkable. <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, like so much of this story is remarkable. So you all moved back, you started on this, uh, on this path towards medicine. So what happened next? So it was all a bit surreal, really. So we'd left behind this lifestyle in Los Angeles, um, nice house, kids in a good school, you know, celebrities, all the stuff everywhere. And then arrived in this rat infested student hovel 
with my kids and my husband was still in America. He came later. So the very first physics class to divide us up into our appropriate level of, of, of intelligence, they put this maths test out. And there was me and this other guy and he had just come back from Afghanistan. So he was a military person. Uh, and so he and I sat there. We didn't have a calculator. We just looked at each other. And I tried to do this maths test and I simply couldn't do it. So I just wrote on, I did like my, the ones I could do, 30 questions, I probably managed three of them. And then just wrote on paper, really sorry, haven't done this since I was 16. Then so me and the military chappy, I'll leave his name out, and a couple of others got taken off to our remedial (laughs) maths group where we had one-to-one math tuition at least once a week uh, and physics tuition to get us through with an amazing um, lecturer called uh, Dr. Terry McMaster. I'll give him a name check because I don't know how he put up with us. Literally, he'd be on the board writing algebra and going, so you, you, you understand it, breaking it down to really simple. We're like, nope. <laughs> So I thought then, what a huge mistake the university must have made letting me in because there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. This is just like basic stuff. I can't do it. So in that year, we did physics, chemistry and anatomy, all equivalent to A-level standard within a year. Uh, So the anatomy was the first year of anatomy degree and the chemistry was some sort of chemistry like foundation but in the chemistry lab they'd ask us to like do our experiments with the so-and-so pipette in this and we just used to look and say I have no idea what you're talking about can you show me the equipment that you want me to use because I can't do the experiment but through sheer determination and hard work and and really getting to know the people that were the same as me, I managed to pass that year, which meant that I could then start my five-year degree in medicine. And by far, so that was six years in total, that first year was by far the hardest year of medicine, of the degree, uh, by a long way. Mm. So you then went on to do your five-year degree. I just wanted to talk about people the importance of people on your on your twitter feed you mentioned a mr tempest you said oh mr tempest yeah oh so mr tempest was the teacher that i told when i wanted to fly to bristol and he was the only one that was supportive and he said you you know you can do it i believe you can do it you're more than capable of going to bristol but he always stands out because just one teacher Despite all of the negative, if you're told by multiple people, you can't do this, you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. Just one person Mm. is all it takes for you to, had he not said that, I probably wouldn't have replied, actually. I think I've told him. So thank Mm. you, Mr. Tempest, my English teacher he was. (laughs) And, And Dr. Terry McMaster, because I hear an incredible sort of self, motivation and determination throughout but we all need people don't we we all need yeah somebody supporters cheering us on so you did your five years are you a doctor after the five-year medical degree yeah so you do five years and 
within those, so obviously I was nervous about doing the five years because I thought, am I going to be able to do this? Um, and there were a few other parents, especially as I had young children at the time. Mm. Um, so there were, there were nine parents, eight or nine parents in the year. Um, so we sort of studied together. We used to go to soft play centres, learning our medicine whilst the kids were drinking squash and eating Freddos. Mm. And we just worked out a way of being able to study. So when someone would sit down and study for six hour stretches, I knew I would never have a six hour stretch. I would have two hours at best or even half an hour, even breaking it down to five minutes. But in that time, I had to maximize that time, not mm. waste, procrastinate. It's like right, I've got 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is. I need to do this in that time. And I used to set small goals, not big things, just small things. I will learn this. And that's how I did it. And that's how I did it with my friend, Helen, um, who's a radiologist now. And we both, well, the th three of the mums in the year, we came out with honours degrees. So I never failed and actually did well and came in the, the sort of top uh, cohort of the medical degree. So at the end of that, you've got your degree in medicine, you're a doctor. By this point, actually, I, I was remarried. <laughs> So starting my starting complex decisions again. So I remarried in the finals um, in the last year of medicine um, to my current husband, who's lovely, Paul, and started my training. So you start your foundation training, which is two years after your medical degree. So you're a doctor at the end of your medical degree. You do two years in a breadth of specialties. So you have four month placements and you move around and to get a taste of everything, bit of medicine, bit of surgery, general practice, whatever. And during to, to enable you to consolidate your knowledge, get your practical skills and decide what you want to do um, as a specialty. So whether you want to do radiology, pathology or in my case, anaesthetics. So I, because of my previous thing, I always knew that I wanted to do anaesthetics and I was lucky in my foundation job to have foundation jobs doing anaesthetics and intensive care which just confirmed okay that, that, that I definitely want to do that um, so income so foundation should be two years but I like doing things the hard way so in my foundation year one had two further babies <laughs> which meant that my foundation year took three years to complete so you had two further so twins then no uh, one no separate <laughs> separate times Pregnant in finals, started my med, uh, sorry, my foundation job, went off after three months, had a baby, came back, then went off again, had another baby, came back, definitely not having any more babies at that point, <laughs> uh, and then came back um, to my job. Yeah, you, you don't make things easy for yourself. Do you? Well, I think <laughs> it's not, I think it's about just having a different perspective about looking at life as a lot both short and long and not uh -huh. expecting to get things done quickly and that if you want to live a life and you want to have children you want to do things then just accepting mm. it's going to take longer than other than those that haven't done those things and and that those are the things that are really important um those are the things that make you who you are and it's not really your job the jo my job is just one aspect of who I am it's not everything about who I am everything is my family and my my friends and where I live and things like that mm. um oh, I forgot to mention also about during the so my last child another point of which I decided 
was going to give up and another person who gave encouragement. So my last child was born and again, we were given very bad news. Um, so I delivered her, it was great. Um, she, she'd had the heel, newborn heel prick test. And um, it, take, it was about three weeks after and we hadn't had the results back. I thought, that's a bit odd. I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, I'll give them a call tomorrow and see if anything, like where this heel born, this new, this test result is. But I didn't need to because I got called in the morning by the health visitor who had actually been calling me over, this was over three weeks, and kept checking in. I thought, why does she keep asking me this? Really weird. How is, how is your baby feeding? How, how are they doing? How are you? How is she? How is everything? And anyway, she, she called me and said, um, you need to go to the children's hospital this afternoon um, and you need to go and see the name of this person. Uh, and can you go at two o'clock, please? So, of course, I immediately Googled the name of this person and, and said to my husband, I said, this is a cystic fibrosis specialist nurse. Why are we going down to the children's hospital? And then that period of from the phone call from half past nine till two o'clock that day was like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. My husband was convinced they'd done the test wrong and we were just going to be asked to repeat the test. So I went down to the children's hospital, two o'clock, and we went into this room and I knew immediately with the nurse that, whose name we'd been given and the doctor coming in with already a fat file for my three-week-old baby that something was wrong. So they came in and told us that um, she had cystic fibrosis of which we knew because we'd done that, we'd studied it and, and we were totally in shock and just didn't know how, how couldn't process what we were hearing and thought must be a mistake um, and this couldn't be right. But that doctor, uh, who was an, also an amazing doctor, had said, because it was, we were given, it felt like we were given a life sentence. I, I try not to use negative terminology when I talk about it, but our whole hopes and dreams for this child that we had were just shattered in like two seconds. And, but he, that doctor knows that. And he said, you don't change your hopes and dreams for your child. You don't change anything. You just carry on. She will be fine. And then starts telling me about all these things, all these people that he knows. And one that we both said, we're both doctors. Should we give up our careers? And at the time, I was very adamant I was going to give it up. And he just said, no, you don't give up your career unless you have to give up your career. And this is not something now that you need to give up your career. And you can't give something up that your child will think that you've given up something for them. Sacrifice something. So just carry on. So we've done that. We've just carried on. But that is something that's always in the back of our mind is that we may, we may give up, we might not do, we may give up um, because she obviously always comes first and she was very ill in the first four years of her life and spent quite a lot of time in hospital and we, she contracted a really bad bug that we felt responsible for that we brought it home from the hospital. So that is something that plays constantly throughout our job and our training and things like that and luckily we've been supported by our so our training directors and our training heads of school, all doctors have got lives, all doctors have other things going on. And so we've been supported each step of the way just to get through 
each block. Um, so my husband's now finished and he's a consultant in anesthesia and pain medicine. And it's just me left to go. <laughs> So your, your husband's a doctor as well. And did you meet as you were both studying for the same thing? Is that how you met? Well, we'd met. Uh, so we went to Bristol. He was a year ahead of me. And we'd known each other for, well, we've known each other since 2005, but never in any sort of romantic sense at all. And it was after I got divorced and thought, oh, he's really nice. I remember him. I wonder, I wonder if he's single. Oh, he is single. Okay, so can we go for a cup of coffee? And then it developed from there, really. Wow, you asked him. He asked me for coffee, ah. but I think he said it nonchalantly, not expecting me to want to go for coffee. So every time I saw him, it took nine months to go for coffee. I said, <laughs> oh, can, do you, are you free for coffee? And he's like, why is she like? Because he thought I was still married, you see. So he's like, I'm not ah. going for coffee with her because she's still married. <laughs> But he hadn't realised I was actually divorced at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've got, as you say, life happening. Your, your career is only one part of you. And you've got all this life happening around you. You've got the birth of your last child. Uh, but you continued. So did I see that recently you've got your first post? As uh, an what what is it in the UK? An anaesthetist. Anaesthetist. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So um, yes, is that it? You've got your post. You are finally. Yeah. Well, like so, I decided to apply. So I've had had my baby. All this drama, etc., etc. But actually, it's not that drama. I don't want to dramatic. No, not drama. I've had my baby. Uh, and then I decide I'm going to apply for uh, anaesthetic training, which is quite competitive. And again, faced, you don't stand to hope in hell of getting an anaesthetic training post. What are you thinking? But by this point, I've heard this sort of advice so much in my life. I'm not listening. It's like, yeah, no, thank you. So I apply and get, I did get an anaesthetic training post. So it's a seven year training program. So I'm now ST5, which is specialty trainee fifth year. And then you are given your CCT, which is your completion of training. And then you are you can decide that you can become a consultant. And then your training doesn't stop there because medicine, anesthesia is a lifelong specialty. My goodness, this has been a long dream with a fortune cookie in the middle of it. <laughs> so enough, yeah. Saying <laughs> so that something, you know, is possible. I, I can't let you go really without because you're in the NHS. COVID hit mm. last year. Yeah. So That's what was your point. experience of that? Well, I have a different experience um, than many because that was another point in my life for both my husband and I where we thought, right, we might have to give up this job uh, because we're both anaesthetists, airways, we do intensive care. Um, so the first wave of COVID hit and we, because of my daughter's condition, we went into shielding. So we locked down in our house for four months. So our main focus was keeping her healthy because if you remember at the time, it was utterly terrifying what we didn't really know what was coming. Mm. So we 
had to have volunteers deliver her medications. It was completely bizarre. Um, and as evidence came about children with cystic fibrosis and other conditions that actually they weren't that badly affected by it. So we were removed from shielding and returned to work. Um, but whilst we were at home, having said we were shielding, we there was a huge amount of work that we did from home, um, non-clinical work, so research. My husband did remote clinics. Uh, I wrote articles about shielding, and then I started campaigning about other shielding doctors. So I did that work for about a year. Then we were involved in the second waves or the further waves of COVID where this time we actually were working within the hospital. I was lucky to be given what we call green areas to work in because of my daughter's condition. So I did non-COVID intensive care, but it was still very much the COVID experience, but without looking after the COVID patients. But now I have looked after COVID positive patients um, in the current situation that's going on now. So my final question is, what are the key things that you want to say to, to young people, particularly young women? I would say it's really hard for women. I think women, as general, we will take the negative. So if I get a bit of negative feedback, that's the bit of feedback that I will listen to. That's the feedback that wakes me up at night. That's the feedback that you end up, you can end up dominating or ruminating over it. And it's really hard to reject that feedback. But to know that if you believe that you can do something and you may be lucky enough to have a, someone like a Mr. Tempest or someone that tells you you can do it, or even your own inner voice saying that you can do it, then it's worth trying. And I always go into things with an idea that if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And to not get too upset if it doesn't work out because <clears throat> things don't always work out but if you don't try then you haven't tried um and then not to think of things as a complete like final decision to just come back to it if something is still there come back to it a year later two years later or three years later and see if it if it's still possible basically I remember a couple of years ago when I was worried about this Brexit, I was sat in France and thinking, do I apply for French nationality? I felt as if I was giving, giving something up. But then I realised that you just make the best decision for now. Like exactly. you say, it doesn't have to be a final decision. You just do what's right for now. So, mm. Mm. Absolutely. There are a few other things. What I heard was there's more than one path. There's more than one way of doing things. Also, don't believe all the people who said that you couldn't do it, particularly when she became a mother. That was more to overcome. Uh, never give up. Nothing is impossible. Finding mm. a way to make the impossible possible, which I really liked. Um, you also applied anyway, even though people said, well, you won't get this. You applied anyway. And so many people, you know, if you don't apply, you, you've got a 100% chance of failure. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, the value of teams, the value of support, your job in ASDA, you said it was a really good job because of the people that I worked with. And finally, I heard this small goals, step by step. 
particularly when you were doing study and only having 10 or 15 minutes, you had to make the most of them. You couldn't procrastinate. So all of these things, I'm hoping, inspire others, like your story inspired me. Oh, thank, so thank, you. Yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Um, well, thank you. Fitting this in, in your busy schedule. And um, I hope to see that in the next three years, is it three years you can finally say, okay? Hopefully, yeah, yeah, <laughs> hopefully. But I should emphasise, I'm not like a workaholic, you know, all goals. I do do loads of other things like gardening and relaxing and, and things like that. And I think that is probably another reason why it takes so long is you've got to fit in the things that you enjoy that sustain you as a person. Cooking, cake, tea, whatever it is, really. Cake. <laughs> cake what a lovely note to end on thank you so much dr safina watson for your thank time. you very much indeed it was lovely talking to you thank Thanks. you for coming on